Hi, I'm Jake Parker, and this is my podcast, Beyond Fit. My goal is to help you live a happier and healthier life by providing actionable knowledge and advice about a wide range of health and fitness topics, as well as self-improvement. If you want to find out more about me, visit my website, jake-parker.com. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hi guys, welcome back to the Beyond Fit podcast. My guest today, it is his third time on the show. His name is Mike Gibbs. He is my friend, lives down in Florida. I'll kind of let him give a little introduction on his end, but something that we discussed a couple times that he thought would be interesting to talk about on the show was the role of hormones, uh, the role that hormones play rather in fat loss, because something that I've said a lot and something that I kind of look at as a major principle is just that calories play the main role in fat loss. And Mike's point to me was that that's not quite so. I thought it'd be interesting to kind of go back and forth on that, get Mike's thoughts on that, because he has a lot of experience with this kind of stuff. And so I'll kind of let him give an introduction and his background if you have not heard Mike on the show before. Thanks, Jake. So my name is Michael Gibbs, and I'm a nurse practitioner, along with being a strength and conditioning specialist and a yoga instructor. And I've been involved in health and wellness for 20 plus years. And as we were talking about, you know, fat loss and hormones, I really wanted to just think calories. Calories do matter. I mean, it's the second law of thermodynamics and from physics, that, but, but they're only part of the equation. And we all, and I was one of them that told my patients initially, calories in equals calorie out, calories out. You eat less calories than you consume and you're going to lose weight. And it's not possible for you not to. You eat more calories than you need. And you're going to gain weight. And then, uh, then Atkins' book came out. And I am not a fan of ketogenic diets. But what he basically did is he put everybody on a diet that included bacon and eggs and pounds of steak. And guess what? They all lost weight. And not only did they lose weight on the diet, but he, there, there was, they even had an article in Muscle and Fitness in those days that they were putting bodybuilders through this. And guess what? They were, getting, they were losing weight. And they were losing weight fast. And his and his in his thesis, because Atkins was an endocrinologist, or at least had an endocrinology background, he was completely correct that he said insulin makes the body gain weight. So about when was in this? fact it's this is nineteen eighty five. Okay. And the medical community, like anything else, you know, this is all wrong, this is all we don't believe in this. But an incredible number of people went on the Atkins diet, and I'm not a fan of ketogenic diets, and I'll tell you why. Um, but an incredible number of people lost weight literally overnight. And in the keto diet right now, they're not really counting calories. They're, and I, I have several friends on keto, even though I typically warn them against it for reasons we could talk about. But you know, they're, they might eat six eggs covered with five tablespoons of olive oil in their breakfast, which is an easy thousand calories. And they may have some bacon and cheese with it as well, getting up to 1,500 calories. And then you see them for lunch. And they're having a salad with a half a bottle of salad dressing on it, along with, you know, a half a pound of some kind of meat. And then you see them for dinner eating a giant steak and a bag of broccoli. Mm. And they're, they're eating a half a bag of nuts at the same time. And then they're coating it with a half a cup of olive oil. Mm-hmm. And they're in this 4,000 calorie a day range. And they don't exercise and they're losing weight. So the answer is what's going on there. And the answer is their insulin levels are very low. And if we don't have insulin, to drive nutrients into ourselves, not only can we not gain fat, we lose muscle as well. And so, I mean, it, this is just one of the examples of how insulin can mediate fat loss. 
fat, fat, fat loss or fat gain. And it became very interesting to me. Many years ago, we had the ADA diet, the American Diabetes Association diet, and we still have it. And it's similar to what it was in the past, but it's not exactly the same. And basically, it had a list of foods you're supposed to eat. Eat this many, many portions of lean meat, eat this many portions of dairy, eat this many portions of grains, this many portions of vegetables and fruits. And it was, in those days, considered a balanced diet. In my opinion, it was a little low-fat and higher-carb but it was a balanced diet. And for the most part, you put patients on that and they would lose weight. And I can remember having a few doctor patients and they had, they, it used to be that there was this very popular diet that followed the American Diabetes Association diet. And then they had come up with some version of something called like a point system or a credit system. And they basically went away from that diet and they said, you can eat anything you want Everything's going to be associated a credit or a point, and when you're when you're done with your points, you must stop eating. Mm-hmm. So, for the people that followed this diet in the way that it was intended by eating the right foods, they did very well. For the people that said, "Oh my God, this is an excuse to eat anything I want," and it was about 1,200 calories a day, I watched people go from eating their balanced diet. Oh, I can eat anything as long as it's the number of points and switch it to Twix bars mm-hmm. or any other candy bars. But this particular patient liked Twix bars, and they would. Been, and the person not only stopped losing weight, but they started gaining weight on 1,200 calories a day. And this was a medical professional, so it was like, okay, what's going on here? And then uh, I started to get very familiar with Barry Sears's work and Arthur Agustin's work, and what they basically looked at is. They said, look, insulin does make people gain weight, but if you don't have insulin, you lose muscle, and that's no good. Mm-hmm. And they said, carbohydrates, and specifically the foods that contain them, many of them, such as whole grains or fruits and vegetables, do have some health benefits. So it's probably not wise to completely exclude them from your diet. And then they said, fat is good for you because it slows the, uh, it slows the release of, of sugar into the bloodstream, and therefore, it it makes people feel fuller and creates less insulin. So they came up with these balanced diets, which are typically around 30% protein, 30% fat, and around 40% carbohydrates. Agustin never measured it in the South Beach diet. Barry Sears measured it in his own diet. Mm-hmm. The paleo diet doesn't measure it, but they, they're pretty close to the same, the same percentages. Yeah. And people, I noticed, did really, really well with that. And I follow it myself. So it's the key, the key is like, look, calories do matter, but if your insulin levels are high, you can't burn fat no matter what you do. Yeah. yeah. And you can see this with people. People, There are legitimately people that come in and say, I can't lose weight. Mm-hmm. And many of them are insulin resistant and their bodies are producing tremendous amounts of insulin. And they're usually eating the wrong foods, but they're inside of the right calorie level, but they can't lose weight anyway. Yeah. So describe to me that process. I'm still a little bit confused on the, so if someone was eating, say, you know, way above their, their metabolic rate and the calories they burned, call it 2000, just to make it easy. And they were eating, you know, just to make it easy, 3000 calories a day. How does that work in as far as, insofar as the biological processes and the physiological processes that happen uh, that you, that you've mentioned with insulin and with hormones that, that cause them to not gain weight when they're taking in you know, more calories than their body's burning than they're burning through exercise. Because kind of like you said, 
the, the stance that you used to take on it was that it was strictly at the end of the day, calories in versus calories out. That's how I've always uh, came at it as, as well. Absolutely. Let me make this clear. I still recommend never eating more calories than you, than you need. Mm-hmm. If anything, caloric restriction or consuming less calories than you need has been shown to actually increase longevity and health and wellness. So there's some studies on either side, but you know, to me, if you need 2,400 calories a day, eat your 2,400 calories a day. Mm-hmm. But what's really going on with some of these ketogenic diets is, let me explain what happens in a normal meal first. Let's say you have a normal meal of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. You eat your meal, your body starts to digest it, your blood sugar rises because that's carbohydrates break down into glucose. As your blood sugar rises, and along with the rise of your blood sugar, the amino acids from the protein enter your bloodstream, and the fatty acid molecules, molecules also start to enter your bloodstream. The body realizes that the blood sugar becomes too high, and it produces insulin to send the, the blood and the protein and, and the lipids out of your bloodstream and into your cells. This is so insulin effectively takes the foods that you eat and sends them into your tissues where they belong. If you eat too many of the wrong foods, your blood sugar rises too much, your body produces too much insulin, and we get fat, we get diabetes, and other problems. If you eat no carbohydrates, effectively zero, like you were to have breakfast that was a dozen eggs and a steak covered in butter or olive oil, which I don't recommend. But what would happen is all you're sending into your bloodstream is protein and fat. And because your blood sugar doesn't really rise very much after that, your body doesn't produce insulin. And since your body doesn't produce insulin, all that stuff that's in your bloodstream ultimately doesn't get into your cells. And because it's not getting into your cells, it effectively isn't meeting your metabolic demands because it's just stuff that you ate that's floating around but not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So what happens is tissue starts to waste away. Because even though you're eating, the food really doesn't have an impact on you. So effectively, it's almost as if you're not eating, even though you're eating a tremendous amount of calories. And then things get filtered out by the liver, the kidneys, the intestines, and then we just excrete all those, a lot of the food. So that's how someone can eat so many calories in a ketogenic state and not lose weight. And I'm sorry, not gain weight. Mm-hmm. So and still even lose weight. Mm-hmm. So, so their, their tissues are effectively starving. Yeah, so there's no insulin response unless you get those carbs in at the meal as well. If you, if essentially is what you're saying, you get such a you get such a small insulin response mm-hmm. that what ultimately happens is the tissues just don't get fed. Mm-hmm. So and you, go ahead. you can take the converse of this as well. And again, this is something I would never recommend. But you have a bodybuilder that's taking steroids, and while they're taking steroids, and their body is predisposed to building muscle and losing fat because of the hormonal balance they have from the steroids themselves, many of them also take insulin because they know that the insulin will actually drive the protein into their tissues after they're done working out, effectively making their anabolic steroid cycle stronger. Mm-hmm. And this is extremely dangerous because the insulin itself can kill someone when their blood sugar drops too rapidly mm-hmm. and insulin should never be given without a prescription and bodybuilding use of insulin is about as horrible as it possibly gets. But the, the point is, is, you know, people realize that insulin can be used to waste a, by lowering insulin levels so much we could waste away. And by raising insulin levels, we can either get fat or if we're in the perfect environment for bodybuilding, we could use it to get more muscular. Again, that's not something I recommend. Mm-hmm. So what causes the, the rapid drop in, 
and blood glucose, just that, just that huge unnatural spike? Yes. Mm -hmm. So here's what ultimately happens if we eat the wrong diet for too long. So typically what happens is you have a person, let's say they eat, they eat uh, a high glycemic cereal with milk for breakfast. Are you familiar with the term like the SAD, the standard American diet? That's what's coming to mind yes. for, for me. Yeah, um, I would say the standard American diet, yes, definitely does this, but the lower fat diets are even worse. Mm-hmm. Like how low because fat? If you, uh, for a while in cardiology, they were recommending you know, 10 to 10% fat for a certain population. Yeah, that's really low. And in the 80s, we recommended these lower fat diets to everyone because we somehow believed that fat was what made you fat. Mm-hmm. So everybody was going to be lean by eating fat-free cookies and pasta with no meat and whole wheat bread and everything became, you know, no fat, like mm-hmm. fat-free muffins. And people viewed it as a health food. You know what? I jumped on it too. And for a little while, because I was following with the medical community, and it was really the first time in my adult life where I was working out like two hours a day and I didn't have abs anymore. And I went from having abs to not having abs to getting a small belly. And then as soon as I got rid of the low fat diet, they came back again. And the belly went away and I was like, wait a second. And so this was about how could this happen? I would say I started following the low fat diet in the, in the 90s. Yeah. Actually, in the late 80s and then followed it all the way through, I'd say 1995. And then uh, what, what actually stopped, and I, I went from really lean to not lean. And then I went to Greece with my wife. And in Greece, there is nothing that's low fat. Mm-hmm. If anything, everything is super high fat. And I came back from Greece where I wasn't hitting the gym every single day. And all of a sudden, I was lean again. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah. mm. The part that's interesting to me is like, I was just kind of thinking in the context of like the bodybuilding scene at that time. And not that I know a lot about it, but it seemed like a lot of guys were prioritizing higher fat, like eggs and steaks and not necessarily uh, the mono and polyunsaturated fats from like olive oil or nuts, but it seemed like they were getting a lot of saturated fats uh, just from my kind of uh, broad point of view. Well, in the 60s and 70s, the answer was yes. And there's a fat that's highly inflammatory that you can find in red meat and egg yolks. It's called arachidonic acid. It's a fatty acid. Mm-hmm. And nobody knew it. They just knew that when they were eating arachidonic acid, they started getting bigger and stronger. They didn't know why. And they just thought it was protein. And then many years later, uh, Rich Gaspari from Gaspari Nutrition actually created a supplement called arachidonic acid. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was a repl- it was a replacement. I think I'm pretty sure it was a replacement for the original Halodrel 50, which was a pro-hormone. And people got really strong from it. Now, here's the key with arachidonic acid. A lot of research shows that it's bad for the heart. It's bad for it's it's bad for your joints. It's bad for everything because it contains it creates helps create inflammation. So, you know, the answer to that is the bodybuilders went from in the 60s and 70s and early 80s eating those high fats to the late 80s to the early 90s going to this no fat diet, which was like egg whites for breakfast with with a bagel, a whole wheat bagel, and then a snack, which would be fat-free tuna in a can on a bagel, and then another lunch that was like turkey breast on, a, on whole wheat, and it became mm-hmm. a really high-protein, high-carb diet. Yeah. And it, they, they did that for a while, but 
you have to also understand bodybuilders were kind of advantaged and that they could use, if they had extra insulin and they were taking anabolic steroids, mm-hmm. they were now in a position to be converting more of that to muscle. And, and because that's the other scenario where, where I've seen numerous times in my career. So you've got someone, they're eating, say, 2,700 calories a day, and they're following a a bodybuilding workout routine. And they've got big arms, and they've got a big chest. They've also got somewhat of a belly sticking out. And then eight weeks later, all of a sudden, they're they're on a steroid cycle, or they're in a steroid cycle literally overnight. Now they're lean, now they're hard, and their belly's mm-hmm. gone. It, it just shows you that, and they gained 15 pounds in the process. Mm-hmm. It shows you the big impact that hormones can actually have on metabolic rate and protein retention and utilization, that they could be eating more than before, losing fat and still gaining muscle. Yeah. So look, calories matter. And I'm never going to tell anyone not to eat or to, to eat more than they, they, they need. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that it's kind of short-sighted to think that it's only only calories mm-hmm. because I can get someone to lose weight on 2000 calories and I can get some people to start to not lose weight on 2000 calories because not every calorie is equal yeah. because the, ca- the types of calories we actually eat impacts our actual levels of insulin levels in our body. Even you, so, I mean, you wouldn't even tell someone, what about when someone's trying to build muscle? I know we've sort of talked about this before, but what about someone who's undersized, you know, has been underweight their whole life? You wouldn't recommend a period of a calorie surplus to build up like a baseline of muscle? Well, if you just eat a calorie surplus, it's not going to build muscle. So if anything, it's going to, it's going to give them bulk, which is Mm -hmm. 10 pounds of fat with two pounds of muscle. And when they go on a diet to lose the fat, they're going to lose all the muscle. And most of the fat, not all the fat, unless they take steroids. Mm-hmm. So for, for people that I found that are, realistically speaking, smaller than they want to be. Mm-hmm. Now, in general, the smaller and lighter you are, the healthier you are. Mm-hmm. But if someone were to want to gain size, I would want them to do the following. I'd want them to go to the gym two or three times a week, squat, deadlift, standing overhead press, pull-ups or weighted pull-ups, bench press weighted dips and uh heck you could throw a calf raise in there mm-hmm. a bent row and just that is what those workouts are going to do is they're going to really tax the body they're going to really tax the nervous system they're going to make the body produce more testosterone and growth hormone which is in effect going to stimulate muscle growth would i want them to have an extra 20 to 40 grams of protein a day yes would if they had an extra 200 calories a day, do I think that's probably a good thing? The answer is I do. But anything beyond that, they're just going to put on fat. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about kind of going back to like the whole keto aspect and the fact that you were saying people that are on these no-carb diets can uh, have this lack of insulin response. And so my question was, is that one of the uh, situations where like you were talking about how you have friends on keto. And when I think of people on keto, it's usually more so like an average Joe than someone who really is versed on health and fitness and is into working out. So what about a situation where someone's on keto and then they have like a cheat day or cheat meal when they're getting like a hundred to 200 or more grams of carbs? How does that factor in? Well, that's where it gets real interesting because what ultimately, what I've seen with keto and I've seen with Atkins, which is the reason I don't like it is and i knew this one one guy and he was a really great guy 
and he started around 365 pounds. He got to 275 on keto in about six months with no effort whatsoever and not even working out. And then on a, he'd go out and have a cheat day and he'd gain 10 to 12 pounds. And it sounds crazy, but you know, his body would produce insulin. His body wasn't ready to deal with and gain 12 pounds. And then he'd go on the keto diet and it would go away in three or four days. And then his weight loss just stopped. And that's what I noticed with most of the keto people is if you look at him, it looks like they're losing predominantly muscle along with some fat and they get stagnant to a point. Now in this particular case, put the person on his own diet with an appropriate level of calories for him, which was still at a negative, negative calorie load. The calories were based on what his ideal weight would be instead of his current weight. And he dropped weight so fast that he, he didn't have the cheat days because he wasn't feeling deprived. Mm-hmm. And even if he did, his body was still used to tolerating insulin. He dropped another 60 pounds over the course of a couple of months. And he was feeling good and healthy for the first time. Mm-hmm. Because before he was feeling tired and lethargic. So, yeah. So the, uh, essentially the, where the, where the kind of caveat lies there is just the fact that if you introduce any sort of carbs, uh, you're going to get that insulin response to like a much higher degree, if I'm understanding that correctly. Well, when you're about, yeah, I mean, well, you're either getting it to a higher degree or your body just doesn't know how to process the insulin for a period of time. And then it really adapts. And I mean, I, I, I can tell you, I've seen more people that have lost a hundred weight or hundred pounds plus on a keto or an Atkins diet, which are both keto diets. Mm-hmm. And the difference is Atkins was more protein and the ketogenic diet is, is, has more fat and protein, but still they're both. The point is you're, you're eating proteins, fats, and very, very little carbs to, be keep, to stay in ketosis. So it's, it's almost as if something happens when these guys cheat because they gain weight and they gain weight fast. Mm-hmm. So my other question kind of related to that same sort of topic is like I was thinking about it in the context of my diet and also you talk about the zone diet. I would say if I follow any diet, I couldn't say I follow the zone diet close, but that's probably the diet that my day-to-day life resembles the most where you have that balance of carbs and fats and proteins very often. But sometimes I, I do try to prioritize protein feedings like three to five times a day. And sometimes that just amounts in one protein shake. So I'm curious, and then something I don't hardly ever do, but I know is common among, you know, just like average people is just having one source of macronutrient, whether it be like having some fruit, which is obviously just carbs or some oatmeal, just carbs or some nuts, just fat. So like what happens when you eat just protein or just carbs or just fats, as far as that insulin response that you mentioned, because you've mentioned it in the context of like multiple micro or sorry, macronutrients. Yeah, so I, I try never to eat a meal that's not balanced with protein, carbohydrates, and fat. The exception would be after someone had a really high-intensity workout. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about bench presses and bicep curls, but we're talking about a 90-minute-plus session of that's purely high-intensity high aerobic-plus anaerobic training. Mm-hmm. For, for example, if someone went to the gym and they did – front squats, back squats, deadlifts, kettlebell swings, and then they went and did intervals on the track. Mm-hmm. That to me would be a high intensity workout. I would then like them to have some proteins along with some higher glycemic carbohydrates, like say whey protein and orange juice. Mm-hmm. As soon as they're done their workout to restock some of that glycogen 
all the burnt carbohydrates that they had and also to get some amino acids into their bloodstream. Mm -hmm. But what happens if you eat carbohydrates without protein, it raises your blood sugar really fast and then your body produces too much insulin. Mm -hmm. So I know I don't like to ever see people eat carbohydrates by themselves. I, and, that, and Barry Sears and, his, and with his work with his own diet, you know, has a lot of evidence as to why he doesn't like that. So if you were to eat nuts by themselves, I don't think anything's going to happen because you're just increasing the, the fat in your the fat in your diet, and it's not going to raise your own insulin levels. But it's that unopposed carbohydrate, which is typically pretty problematic. Mm-hmm. But if you were just going to have a protein shake and you weren't going to have any carbohydrates and fat with it, 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 unless you have unless you have sufficient insulin floating around your bloodstream from previous meals, which you may, the protein would never even make it into your cells anyway, because they need carbohydrates to drive the protein into the cells. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of like, it sounds very similar to the workouts that you sent me that I've been doing a lot of uh, the more functional training sort of stuff. And like something that I do a lot when I work out more, more recently over the past year, a lot of times it's been a lot less frequently like a shake, but more so like I'll have either my breakfast or lunch or dinner, depending on what point of the day I'm working out. So, you know, something that's balanced with proteins, fats, and carbs. So how do you how do you how do you how do you look at that compared to like you said something that's really fast digesting like whey protein and orange juice or something as a rule i believe food is always better Mm -hmm. because even if you're doing a 90 minute high intensity training session four times a week the recovery is still if you have food right after your session is perfect Mm -hmm. there's no need for more Mm -hmm. when i'm when i'm talking about this kind of orange juice plus whey protein Look at the context of an athlete that would do one of those 90-minute high-intensity sessions during the morning, for example, yeah. and then get in and then go go do, do their martial arts training mm-hmm. for three hours at night. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have something to restock those glycogen levels, they're not going to recover from their training. Mm-hmm. But these are people where strength and conditioning is to make them better at their actual sport. Mm-hmm. For the average person, I think one of the worst things we did was convince people they needed recovery shakes. The average person goes to the gym and does a bench press, a couple bench presses and curls. They jump on the elliptical, they burn 300 calories, and then they have a 700 calorie protein shake Mm -hmm. because there's full of high glycemic carbohydrates because there's signs all over the gym that says, if you don't recover within an hour, you're not going to, you wasted your workout. Mm -hmm. Like the anabolic window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like word that gets thrown around. Yeah. So what, what what about someone who... For example, like I'm thinking kind of in my own context again is is I don't do this very often, but sometimes I like to fast until noon and sometimes I'll work out first thing in the morning. So what, what, what kind of, what, what, how do you look at that as far as working out and not having any food a few hours before or after? How do you feel when you do the workout? Um, I feel, I feel not too much different, I guess. When you mentioned like the context of those really, really hard workouts, I can't say I'm ever pushing to like absolute maximum because I like to do a lot of yoga throughout the week too. And so I don't like my weight training or cardio to like be overly taxing. So I, I, I don't ever feel like it has a really adverse effect. Well, I think, uh, I think you, you, you changed the context of it right there. And I, I love yoga too. And Mm -hmm. I practice yoga every day. And because it's, it's, to me, it's medicine for all the injuries I had from Olympic lifting and from martial arts and powerlifting and those other crazy things that I did when I was younger. 
which were really fun, but they left me with arthritis and herniated discs and labral tears and hips and shoulders. So, so if you're training, if you're training for maximum results, that cardio has to be really high intensity and those training sessions have to do because the whole point of the high intensity training is to actually bump up your, your growth hormone levels, your Mm -hmm. testosterone levels, your IGF one levels. So if you're not training to, if you're training to, if you, I don't know that you'd be able to train to max capacity in a fasted state. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if you're not training, if you're, if you're, and, and to get the real benefits out of that. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're not training at a, at a maximum capacity and you're doing it in a fasted state, some would actually argue that your body is in a better position to burn fat if you're fasted beforehand. Mm-hmm because your glycogen levels are lower, which means your body has no choice but to burn fat. And I don't necessarily have anything against, I mean, it will delay recovery, Mm -hmm. but I don't have anything against someone that wakes up at nine o'clock in the morning and wants to go for a run before they eat breakfast. And then they go through and they have breakfast and go through the rest of the day. I think that's great. I would like them to eat something when they're done. Uh So mentioning hormones, you, one of the things we talked about at the beginning and talked about before was specifically the role that hormones play in the um, equation of fat loss and the calorie aspect, but the word you mentioned was insulin. And so how do you relate insulin versus hormones and how do those two intertwine? Maybe I'm thinking totally out of, out of uh, context here, but you would not quantify insulin as a hormone, correct? Or would you? I would. You would. Okay. So, I mean, it's a call it a peptide or a hormone produced by the pancreas. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there's there's a tremendous number of hormones that actually in, impact you know whether we gain weight or whether we lose weight. Mm-hmm. T3, T4, which are thyroid hormones, growth hormone, IGF-1, testosterone levels, DHT levels, sex hormone binding level levels. If we have a more estrogen and progesterone, we're going to gain weight versus if we have higher testosterone levels and DHT levels, we're going to, we're going to be more likely to lose weight. If we have low SHBG levels, we have higher free lo- levels of free testosterone, which makes us more likely to lose weight, lose fat, and build muscle. And if our cortisol levels are, are high, we're going to have more fat gain and, and muscle loss. If our cortisol levels are lower, we're going to be leaner. So there's just so many hormones that actually have an impact on our weight gain and our weight loss. Mm-hmm. And the foods we eat can have a very substantial impact on our hormones. So I like to tell people that, yes, calories matter and don't eat more calories than your body needs. But not all calories are equal. Some mm-hmm. have you know, fines, interest, and, pen- and penalties. So by that, if you're having a cookie and it's white flour and sugar, it's going to raise your insulin levels a lot more than if you had some slow cooked oatmeal of the same number of grams of carbohydrates mm. with some protein, with some egg whites or some protein powder in there and some almonds to give you some healthy monounsaturated fat to slow the absorption. So how do you feel about the, if it fits your macro sort of dieting that's made, that's been becoming a lot more popular recently? Well, the funny thing is that's what they did 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And people switched off of it because it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And then they went back to it. Then they went off of it because they realized it wasn't optimal. And now they're back to it. So in the 60s, doctors would tell their patients when they were overweight to, to not eat bread, foods like bread and pasta. Mm-hmm. And then in the 80s, we told them, no, 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 don't eat fat. 
Mm-hmm. That's what makes you fat. And then in the late 80s, early 90s, everybody went on a keto diet. And then people realized maybe that wasn't healthy. You eat all this saturated fat and high cholesterol foods. So then in the 90s, we went back to lower, lower fat foods again. And then cycle. that's when, I, yeah, and then, the, and then they went out there with, hey, wait a second. There's a lot of great lessons to learn from keto. But, you know, we don't really want the saturated fat and all this garbage. And that's when Barry Sears and, and, and Arthur Agustin and, and all the other people that took out a medical perspective that said, look, we can keep our insulin levels lower. We can keep eating fat because fat is good for you, but we don't really want to be consuming a lot of monounsaturated fat because I'm sorry, we don't want, we want to be consuming a lot of monounsaturated fat, but much less polyunsaturated fat because the omega-6 fatty acids can cause inflammation, which can make us fat and also give us cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. And so what we really want is a diet that's got a, a moderate amount of lean protein, a moderate amount of fat, predominantly from things like olive oil, Mm-hmm. and avocados and, and, and almonds and other omega-9 or monounsaturated fatty acids. And we don't want to get rid of the carbohydrates, but fruit are a really good source of natural carbohydrates. And slow-cooked oatmeal is a good one, and barley is low-glycemic. So let's just try and balance it out with the best of the foods. And that's where my brain lives. I don't believe that anything is is perfect, and I don't mm-hmm. think we're ever going to really figure out what the right solution is. Because we've been in in medicine, we keep researching the same things and and coming up with different conclusions based on who interprets it. Smoking is good for you. Smoking is bad for you. Exercise is good for you. No, exercise doesn't protect you. Oh, wait, exercise does help you. No, it doesn't help you. And they're still studying this thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's studies each week on whether exercise is even good for you. And, you know, I think you know the answer to that, but we're going to keep studying it. So I think balance is everything. I think, you know, we've got good data to suggest that foods like butter probably aren't healthy. And, you know, super high, high, lots of saturated fat probably isn't good for you. So I think it's probably best to avoid that. I think we know that sugar is not good for you. So it's probably best to avoid, to avoid sugar. But I think we, the jury is still out on whether whole grains are good for you or not. So I would assume unless it probably makes sense to have a small amount of them in your diet. Another thing I was curious about is you mentioned saturated fat a few times. I was curious how you felt about that because it seems to be another big point of contention and another like strong point that's emphasized in the modern context. If you look at saturated fat, like some people feel like it's okay to have a lot, to eat a lot of, you know, red meat and eggs and other animal fats and stuff like that. But the common wisdom and uh, from, from what I know, the, things that have been studied will show that you, you don't, you want to try to limit your saturated fat to maybe like 20% of your overall fat or something like that would be like, or less. yeah, it would be like the, the advice from the American Heart Association or sources like that. So how do you feel about people that are emphasizing a, a higher saturated fat content that, you know, have in my view, some, um, not recognition, but some, I guess, backing and like athletic sort of people and stuff like that. You know, here's where I think it's coming from. I, I think when people started looking at the consumption of margarines and omega, high omega-6 fatty acid oils, uh, and there's a couple of that, and pretty much any oil for the most part other than olive oil has a lot of omega-6 fatty acids in it. Mm-hmm. And 
when you start consuming those things, the, there's good at, uh, supporting evidence to suggest that it really causes a lot of inflammation and wreaks havoc on your diet. Mm-hmm. In which case, it, you can all, one could almost argue, and I'm not going to be the one that makes that argument because I like to avoid saturated fat. But one could argue that coconut oil with its high degree of saturated fat or grass-fed butter are probably better for you than the omega-6 fatty acids. Mm. And I'm not going to make that judgment or determination, but I'm more likely to have butter at a restaurant than soybean oil mm-hmm. because I still, don't want, I, I, I still don't want those high omega-6 fatty acids in my diet because I have lots of arthritis and lots of pain. And I can tell the difference in my body by the inflammation I have when I eat those vegetable oil type foods. So for me, I will choose the saturated fat when I have no choice. But in my own house, I'm going to use mono and saturated fat from olive oil and everything. Yeah. And if I'm not using olive oil, I'll have an avocado with a meal or I'll have almonds with a meal. So to me, I'm only consuming saturated on, 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 I'm sorry, mono and saturated fat. I like to keep my saturated fat to less than 10% of my calories, like the uh, American Heart Association recommends. I don't know about coconut oil. And here's the thing. I started including coconut oil in my diet because it made me feel more energetic. But I watched my LDL cholesterol go from perfect to uh, not perfect in a matter of three months, which is congruent with what the American Heart Association has said. And I have a lot of very athletic, you know, older people that have spent their lifetime in the Marine Corps. They're, they're not older, but you know, 55 years old or so. And we're the point where they actually have to be careful with what they eat. And these are people that were exercised several hours per day. And I, I got a call from one of them very recently. And it was like, Mike, your cholesterol just skyrocketed. It's like, I don't understand this. I've been working out two, three hours a day. I walk 12 miles on the beach and then I go to the gym. And I said, your wife's very health conscious. And he said, I know you see how she cooks. And I said, she'd been using a lot of coconut oil. And he says, yeah, she puts it in everything. Like, well, stop the coconut oil, get your cholesterol rechecked in three months and let me know. And it went back to normal. Hmm. Interesting. So now no, no one had done Berkeley panels on myself or my friend or other friends that I've seen do this where they act. Berkeley is one of the more advanced cardiovascular testers, other labs that do it. And what they do is they actually look at, in addition to the LDL and HDL and the triglycerides, they look at the particle size. So one, some theories are out there that coconut raises your LDL, but it also increases the particle size, making it less likely to cause cardiovascular disease. But I don't really know if there's any good studies that actually prove that point, other than people love coconut oil. And I like coconut oil too, but I, I, I use it very sparingly. I typically use it on days when I'm really exhausted. Because mm-hmm. you do notice an energy boost from the medium chain triglycerides in it. Interesting. You know, I'm more concerned with, you know, how I'm going to be when I'm 75 years old. And for that, I'd rather do what's healthy. Yeah, right. It's context dependent again. Just like, I mean, the example that's coming to my mind is I think there's a lot of football players or like professional wrestlers or things of that sort that would happily take 5, 10, 15, 20 years off their life to, to peak highly in their sport because maybe for them it's the money or maybe for them it's the fame, but it's like they weigh, uh, well, maybe they don't always weigh that. Maybe sometimes it leads to like regret or wishing they had done things differently. But I think there's a lot of guys that are old and crippled up and probably die earlier than they would have otherwise. But for some people that peak is what it's all about. So it goes beyond just what makes the most sense for our bodies and for our longevity and our livelihood uh, versus, you know, what are you prioritizing in life? Is your sport everything to you? And 
that sort of stuff that, that in that context. And, and and even if I didn't do it with steroids, martial arts to me were everything. Mm-hmm. And I trained to the point where I have the arthritis of an 80 year old by the time I was 20 years old mm-hmm. or 20 some years old, because, you know, I was constantly running, jumping, lifting, and I've learned how to manage that arthritis over the years and dietary changes and yoga. And there's a, there's a whole lot of other things that, you know, made it that I know how to manage it. But the point is, is, you know, I, I made the decision. I, in my heart, I knew somewhere along the line when my shoulders were broken, when I was 19 years old in an orthopedic surgeon's office. And when my back was starting to hurt, when I was a, as a 22 year old EMT before mm-hmm. I became a paramedic and I, and I spent seven more years, you know, do, carrying people up and down the stairs and rescuing them from cars mm-hmm. and I could feel my back getting get worse by the day but it was the only way I could pay for school because I just didn't have any other type of financial resources and I made those choices because it was what I either thought I needed to do or had no choice to do mm-hmm. and we all pay for the lifestyles that we live so my perspective is figure out what you want figure out what matters to you most ideally those things should be somewhat grounded in reason or ration Mm-hmm. and then go go get it but you know for the average person that just wants to look a little better i don't think it's a, i don't think destroying one's health is, is a good reason yeah i couldn't agree more it's more of a overarching you know life philosophy at that point but i think it is important to have goals and to have a vision and to say that you know this is my vision and if i have to do some things at certain points that compromise other aspects of my health or well-being or whether it be, you know, you look, look towards different things like our relationships or our financial well-being, it's all a balance. And I think the most important thing that I've been focused on for the past year or so is just trying to have a vision and an outlook for my life for what I want the rest of my life to look like. And so I think that if you have that strong vision and you have a philosophy for your life, it makes it a lot easier to make those decisions to sometimes that sometimes go against what on paper might be best for your health or you know, whatever other standard you're using at the time. Yeah. I mean, we all have to make our decisions. I remember when I, when I first started working in tech, which is odd for a healthcare person and there was this test that no one could pass, but the company needed someone to get through it. And I, for the most part, locked myself in a room and read 500 to a thousand pages a day, every day for six months straight mm-hmm. and passed the test. And it gave me the absolute best career I could have ever dreamed for. But the point was, is, you know, I didn't even have time to exercise during those six months. Mm-hmm. And I, I was young, so I thought I could get away with it. But I didn't feel good during that time. I wasn't even happy because I felt like part of my life was missing. But I, mm-hmm. I went and did what I needed to do to be able to secure, to be ability to take good care of my family for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I did it. And I'm glad I did it. I don't regret it by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it, it it's all about choice. And I, I, I made a decision. I had a goal and I ran towards that goal, like my life depended upon it, which I mm-hmm. typically do with any goal. And now that I'm a little older, I'm a little more rational. It's like, okay, do I really need this? Mm-hmm. Is this good for me? Or is this not good for me? And because I've, I've, I've learned the lesson hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it seems like something I've thought about a couple of times this week based on a couple of different things I've like read and podcasts that I've listened to. But just the concept of when you say yes to something, you're always saying no to something else. And so I think that's important to remember, too, like saying yes to 
wanting to be in the technology field and striving and thriving there meant saying no to your exercise for a little bit. And so I think it's important to look at things in that context, especially where it was phrased in something I heard this week was they were talking about having children, which is not something I have currently, but I'm, I'm excited to, to have children someday. And, and that's something that uh, I, I look forward to. But they were talking about the fact that in career, you're always, you're always, you know, when you say yes to something, in some respect, you're saying no to your family and to your children. So it is, it's just, it is really interesting to me looking at that in those different contexts, you know, what is, what is your health and your exercise routine uh, look like? And how does that change when you have to prioritize your family and your relationships? And it's, it's never as simple as it looks on paper, especially when it comes to health and fitness. There's never anything simple in business. We call it opportunity cost Mm -hmm. because if you explore one option, you've devoted resources to it, whether they be personnel, time, money. Mm-hmm. And if you're devoting those resources there, they can't be put somewhere else. And I actually have a very good friend that's a yoga instructor, and he always inspires me. And I've known him for a long time. And the management consultant in me is always looking at, like, every time I go to that school, I'm like, hey, you know, you could do this, and this would make your business grow, and you could do this, and you could do this. And He's always grateful for the guidance. And one day he says to me, he's like, I love that idea. As soon as my kids are in college, I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. He said, but I don't want to miss out any time with my kids. Mm-hmm. And when I, heard, when I heard that, I was just, I thought it was the greatest thing. Because no, no one ever said anything like that to me before. Mm-hmm. Because I, you know, most of my time was either in medicine or big tech. And in, or in you know, healthcare consulting in big tech on technology, improving healthcare. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really great. The, the guys and girls that I worked with were always drive, 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 drive. Mm-hmm. We have to win at this. 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 Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was so nice that the way that person prioritized his children first. And got my incredible respect for it. it, it it's, it's not something I've seen a lot of, but it's something that I, I deeply respect and admire. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's about all our time, Mike, but I want to thank you for coming on again. I think it was a really fun conversation and it was a fun way to wrap up too. And the, uh, just the general aspect of looking at this stuff in a, in a broader context. Sounds great. And I'm always happy to be on your show. I love what you're doing. All right. Thanks again, Mike. Take care, Jake. Hey, it's Jake again. If this podcast provided you any value, I'd encourage you to share it with someone who you think might enjoy it. In addition, it'd really help me out a lot if you would go and subscribe or leave a review for my podcast. It's super easy. And in addition, if you have any questions or comments, I'd love for you to reach out to me by email or Instagram DM, which can both be found on my website. Thanks.